welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, Blade Disgusting's horror video game podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Poe. And this week we're checking off yet another bucket list horror game for the podcast, that being Capcom's Resident Evil 2. Originally released in 1998 for the PlayStation and remade in 2019, Resident Evil 2 took the bigger and better mentality when it came to sequels by swapping out the backwoods isolation of Spencer Mansion for the flame engulfed streets of Raccoon City, the sprawling RPD fortress, and the sinister umbrella laboratory residing beneath the city streets. Players would take on the role of either Leon Kennedy or Claire Redfield, and while the core narrative of Resi 2 was largely the same, both characters' paths in reaching that similar endpoint had their own unique twists and turns in getting there. But before diving into branching character paths, Resi's masterful blending of puzzles and survival horror, and possibly sharing memorable moments or 10 from the game, let's introduce our guest. Today we're joined by a fellow Bloody FM Podcast Network member, that being Rob Coakley from Hometown Ghost Stories. Rob, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's very exciting to be here and talk about one of my favorite games of all time. This is something that, uh, as I said in the intro, like have like our own bucket lists uh, when we were sort of you know conceptualizing the podcast and whatnot. Games that we knew at some point we would have to cover. While we uh, sadly couldn't get you on for the Bioshock episode, uh, we're more than happy to have you here to chat about Resi Two today. Resident Evil Two is like brings back so many memories for me from childhood. To mm-hmm. be honest with you, I I started playing the Resident Evil series when I was like ten years old, roughly around that around that age, ten eleven, and when they announced Resident Evil 2, you know, the internet was in its infancy then. <laughs> so I found out about it by watching a trailer on, I think it was PlayStation Underground. And if you go back and I don't even remember how I got that disc, maybe in a magazine or something. And that trailer, I remember it vividly and half the stuff in that trailer wasn't even in the <laughs> game. So it was very exciting to see the evolution of this game. And I'm pretty excited to talk about it. Yeah, this was like the first game I think that I had for my original PlayStation. Um, and But I had known about the game leading up to it just because I'd been flipping through like, I don't know, old copies of EGM or something that, you know, I was borrowing from my brother or something at the time. Um, and so like to finally get my hands on it and to play a game and, you know, Neil and I have talked about this a lot just because it's, you know, both of ours, uh, one of our favorite zombie games of all time. But the idea of like finally getting to play a game that depicted things that I'd only seen in movies leading up to that point, right? I'd been watching, you know, zombie movies on sci-fi network or whatever. And then to finally get to play a game that put me in the throes of a zombie apocalypse was uh, a very formative experience uh, in more ways than one. But uh, I'd love to start with like your introduction to Resident Evil in terms of like, what was the first game that you played? Did you come to one or were you like me and kind of came to it at a further point in the series? So I started with one. One was the first one that I played and I I grew up watching horror movies, probably shouldn't have been. <laughs> I think four years old, I watched Killer Clowns from Outer Space and was terrified. And probably my lifelong obsession with being uh, you know, terrified of clowns starts there, <laughs> moves on to it. And then, but there was an allure, like you, you wanted more, like that feeling was like an adrenaline rush almost. And the video game aspect there wasn't a lot of horror horror games when we were kids. There was like Castlevania maybe like, but other than that, you weren't really getting horror games. And then resident evil came along and parents at that point, you know, they were worried about mortal Kombat and stuff <laughs> like that. They were like resident evil. What? I don't know what that is. So they would just, you know, get it for you. And I was lucky enough to get a f- copy of resident evil when I was like, I guess at 10, 11 years old. And right away that game hits you in the face with the dogs coming through the window 
And I think that they stepped it up. And like, so to me, that's an iconic moment. And then there's another iconic moment in this game that we're going to talk about shortly, I'm sure. But yeah, my introduction was the, the Spencer Mansion, just running through that, you know, with Jill Valentine, because she had two extra inventory spots <laughs> other than Chris Redfield. <laughs> Yeah, it's always the essential way to look at it. I think it's, it's um, Jill's like training wheels. You know, when you get into that game first time around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man, that really resonates with me in terms of you know playing games that occupied the horror space, or I'd say like horror adjacent games, but nothing really captured that raw, true horror feeling that you know films were delivering to us at far too young an age. Um, and you know, in terms of games like Resident Evil felt like it was from people like us, right? That really like consumed a lot of different types of horror, understood what made it terrifying. Um, and putting that in game form was, uh, you know, eye-opening to the true potential of horror in games. Like I grew up playing like Zombies Ate My Neighbors, which, you know, is like this fun kind of cutesy game that uses horror, but it's not a scary experience, right? So getting to finally, you know, find a horror f- franchise that, you know, just kept growing and exploding and not only the scale but you know the scares themselves um that is kind of like the magic of resident evil um and i think that you know it's one of those games that when they started announcing like remakes that was incredibly exciting for me at a time when i was kind of getting back into games uh, after taking like a hiatus so to kind of get to come back to what was arguably my favorite horror game back in the day and now have this you know gorgeous remake uh was really something special i think and definitely a standout of the uh, you know last console generation, and a company that knows how to yeah. evolve, right? Mm. So you go back and you play the first Resident Evil game. There are still some like core elements that are great from that game and from the second game, but the evolution of the remakes to to make it better and more modern and to bring the scares to a new generation of horror fans while maintaining specifically in the Resident Evil Two remake what was the core essence of it to me is just, it was just great to go back to that world and experience that. Yeah. You know, in going from Resi one to Resi two, um, you know, what are a few things that you think make Resident Evil two such a successful sequel to the original, you know, like notable differences or improvements from the original, um, that could be either, you know, the classical or remake. Well, I think what they did with the second one that I would, if I were to go back as a kid and remember what was going on, like the police station setting kind of turned me off a little bit before I played the game, right? Because I do a ghost show, right? I talk about ghosts all the time. So you put me in a spooky mansion. Perfect. That's what I want. I, I want spooky mansion, right? Like, and they were like, well, it's going to be in a police station. And you're like a police station. That sounds boring as hell to be completely honest but then they find a way to make it well it's not just a police station it's an old uh, museum that has all these twists and turns and they find ways to bring in all the puzzle elements from the first game and expand upon that so they took something that seemed like it was going to be mundane and made it like the core of the game you remember this police station and you'll never forget it you might forget some of the other environments in the game you know the labs whatever the lab is it's a staple in resident evil but that police station is is almost as iconic as the spencer mansion in my in my head yeah absolutely and i think that's credit to the remake that when you get to that that it's instantly recognizable despite we've been 
so much you know more detailed and then improved and expanded you, you straight away just look at it and go yeah that, that's exactly what i wanted i mean i think when we saw it early on before the game came out it was like oh yeah i think they might they might know what they're doing here and it, that's that that was the one thing you wanted to be sure they were getting right if anything was like yeah get that intro right get the police station right and yeah that entrance way is just like almost as synonymous with Resident Evil as anything else for me so yeah it's it was great that they got it so well done and you and you get a little worried about it right when they're doing a remake mm. you're like yeah what are they going to do with this environment how are they going to how are they going to keep that eeriness and i don't know about you guys but i went back and i i started playing the remake again before we were doing this episode and i went and i watched some walkthroughs of the original yeah. And what I thought they did a great, great job on in the remake versus the original is the lighting in the mm. in the police station. Like the the first one was very, very bright, and they, it had to be. It was PlayStation right. One. Yeah. Like yeah. you have, you're limited in what you can do. But the way they did the lighting in the second one, man, like just the atmosphere with that alone, like. It's there's still lights, but it's a lot darker than it should be. Yeah. It just really added to me. Added to I me. agree. It's um taking you know the, one of the highlights of the original games, uh, the fact that you know with the fixed camera, your scares come from what you cannot see, and being a, mm-hmm. a really light series of games, the, the fixed cameras provide that rather than darkness. You know, and so the darkness now becomes the new fixed camera effectively it's the, the thing keeping you from seeing exactly what you should see and it's you know the perfect way to modernize that really if you're not going to have a fixed camera mm-hmm. yeah and i think that the lighting is such a great way at heightening the terror of you know the core ex- the original experience and you know let's say like a lesser company that was making a remake of a beloved game you know maybe a company that isn't as smart in a modern updating they might say like oh well let's mm. just put more zombies in here or let's just have more jump scares or something that weren't in the original game which you know after a while is going to feel perhaps disingenuous to the core experience of resident evil um and so like the lighting doing a lot of the legwork there uh you know in addition to the game just looking gorgeous like i'm still taken aback at just how good this remake looks um and you know the all the uh the head popping delights that are in this you know when you get your hands on the <laughs> shotgun or the deagle or something um it is really in my mind you know one of the gold standards i think of like or rather a blueprint for remakes of beloved games um but i guess rob for you like what constitutes a good remake of a game? Um, and, you know, what is uh, what do you find to be like the qualities that really make that work? Well, you got to find a way to balance making your your older audience enjoy it, but being able to bring in that newer audience as well. Like I, I'm old, like I, I'm in my 30s, right? I, I want to relive some of that experience that I had in my childhood. But I understand, like I have friends that have never played Resident Evil 2. And I was talking to them last night, my co-host, Dave and Jesse, they've, they've never played the game. I'm like, there's no way you can go back and play the original now because it's just it's not going to be the same experience for you. I could go back and play it because I experienced it as a kid. Tank controls was a thing I grew up with. Like I, you know, it's fine for me, but you can't throw that on someone that's never played that now. And they're going to be like, what the hell am I doing here? This is <laughs> ridiculous. Um so finding a way to modernize it, and I thought they did it 
such a great way. I was worried about them going to first person as much as I love Resident Evil 7. Um, I'm not a first person guy, which is weird because Bioshock's like my favorite game of all time. But I'm glad they found a way to keep it third person like and, and do some camera work with that and make the game fluid. So you need to find a way to introduce your old audience with your new audience. And a lot of games can't do it. We saw it with the Silent Hill remasters. Like they just they just didn't find the right sweet spot. Hopefully they do in the future. I know they're working on those. But for me, it's finding finding that meshing point And it's hard to do. Yeah, it, it is. Um, and, you know, that as you say, that is the worry of keeping those who wanted it, who were clamoring for it and hold those memories of the original you've got to get those people invested you know and yourself and me and jay we're all really are those people and you know i think it's very hard to appreciate some of the things it does right at first with, with that in mind because you are almost on the defense straight away you're like well you know these are my memories i don't want it to be bad i don't want it to be unlike you know, what we love but yeah, there'll be bits in the game where you go, oh God, no, this doesn't feel right. Oh, I didn't like that. And, I, and you feel a little sour. But I think it, much like the original, has extra layers once you play it again and again and again. And you just sort of figure out, oh, okay, this does some cool stuff. And you get to appreciate it for what it is. It's, you know, so for a modern audience, they can go into it and it's, you know, an excellent horror game, does everything it should. Really just sells the night of terror that it is but if it does take a little bit of adjustment it has to be said in that beginning bit yeah you know i think rob made a great point about you know this being a game that i think is more approachable uh not only you know it's more accessible than you know going back and trying to play the original version is almost impossible now um so you know not only that but the fact that it is a game that, you know, has polished off some of those rough edges that, you know, the game has evolved out of at this point. Uh, it being, you know, that third person, again, no tank controls, those types of things. Um, if you're playing on normal also, like it's a little bit easier. Like in my recent playthrough, I've never really found myself running out of ammo or anything like that, which, you know, back in the day when you're playing those classic ones, I've kind of felt like, oh, I had to make every bullet count um, or yeah. every, you know, healing item count. Whereas in this one, maybe I had just a little bit more kind of like, freedom or just plethora of resources to get through sections, but I wouldn't be able to recommend something like classic Resi 2 to my buddies now that, you know, they don't really play a ton of horror games, but something like this, that's a little more action oriented of a, uh, mm. a rendition of it um, is much more, you know, consumable for them. Um, something that I was thinking about though, in terms of, you know, doing a remake and accessibility with games, this is something that, you know, Neil and I, talk about a lot on this podcast and you know with film accessibility going back we're seeing these remasters of like very old films and stuff and you know the nature of streaming that most things you could just stream them for free on tubi or something like that um but with remakes of games when they're changing certain elements that weren't in the core game um it made me start to think a little bit more about you know the idea that if we were to let's say we get another 10 years removed from the remake and whatnot, all of a sudden we have this game that has made certain changes that were not in the original one. And mm -hmm. is that something that people should be worried about with remakes? Do you know what I mean? Like the idea that in the next 10, 20 years, there's going to be a whole generation that only knows Resident Evil Remake. And 
you know, this game does make some changes. Like that early section from Resi 2 when you're running through the city streets is a lot more, is a lot longer, right? I believe the gun shop section also is right in that beginning section. Um, do you guys kind of have any thoughts about that? About, you know, the, I suppose the responsibility of doing a remake that, you know, does preserve that, uh, that sort of identity of the game? Well, well, for me, it's like, are you telling a better story narratively now? And that's what matters to me as, as long as you're, as long as like, I guess, you know, for lack of better words, as long as the soul is still there of the game, right. Then you can change things. I went back and watched some of the opening playthroughs. I forgot how long yeah, that opening section too. was to be perfectly honest. And then I forgot that the, the whole gun section, the gun store section was in the beginning, completely forgot about that. So I guess if I'm forgetting that it's not, overly important on where you put it if you're telling a better story and they use that section to tell a better story in the remake him with his daughter like that you know that gives you more character development in a very very short time for somebody Mm -hmm. so i'm okay with that we can't we can't hold on to the past too too much right like there's movies from the 1920s um that are terrifying for their day and they still have terrifying elements. If you go back and watch um, Dr. Caligari's, uh, like that movie is terrifying for its time and it still is good, but I don't know what you would do with a remake on that shot for shot and, and sell it to a modern audience. Right. So you'd have to twist and turn some things to make it more appealing to somebody that's, you know, in the year 2022 and beyond 2023. So I think it's okay. As long as the, the main soul of the game remains. And for me, Resident Evil 1, 2, 3 originally were were my Resident Evils. I know Resident Evil 4 is a big favorite for most people, but that's when they started losing me. They went real action heavy there. And I was like, this isn't Resident Evil anymore. Mm. Right? For me, personally, for what I played. Yeah, I'm with you. And <laughs> yeah, so like, it was it a fine game. Yeah, I guess if it's called anything else, but you told me that this is resident evil so i was looking for puzzles i was looking for um the point you brought up ammo conservation save spots Uh, resident evil one is the reason that i i have nightmares about save spots (laughs) i made it to the tyrant i didn't have enough bullets and i wasn't backing up my save spots properly i had to go through the whole entire game again (laughs) to to beat it and that was a lesson learned that i you know 30 years almost later (laughs) that i never have forgotten because of that game so yeah as long as you keep the soul of that game i would say um where i don't think the resident evil 3 remake did so much mm, no. um as long as you keep the soul and i think they kept the soul of the original resident evil 2 game yeah they absolutely did and i think the key takeaway of it is that the soul used to be tied to two things which is you know just like the locations the story we already know is there but there's this extra thing of it which it was very homage heavy you know it was very much inspired by Romero and Carpenter you know it's like and you know for me at that time that was brilliant because there was those were two directors that I was falling in love with and seeing a game that did all those things that was basically a Romero film but with bits of Carpenter's Assault in Precinct 13 it was like yes I want this it's great fantastic 
and that's kind of not there with the remake. It starts becoming its own thing and sort of pushing those sort of nods to other films to the side. I mean, the um, the alligator sequence in you know Resident Evil Two remake, I, I hate personally, but you know it's it's because the original just is there as a nod to Jaws. You know the whole thing of it, and it's a more drawn out sequence. Whereas there, it's just like a set piece moment. But I get it. Because when you think of the game as a whole thing, it's just now trying to draw less from, you know, those influences and more from a modern set of influences. You know, the zombie movie has changed so much in the years between the original and the remake that it's, you can understand how the people working on it aren't going to have the same reference points. So yeah, it, it at least remains consistent with what it's doing. And as you say, it still managed to carry the message that way by not just going back and just being what it was you know, and, and just taking it a little step further and adding that sort of modern sensibility to it. Yeah, I think that that is, you know, I agree with both of you guys in the sense that, you know, I'm not as precious about remixing certain elements or, you know, specifically in the Resi 2 remake, right? There are expansions that are made to the police station, but they're done so in a way that feels very natural. So it doesn't feel like this massive kind of like red flag where it's like, oh yeah, this is all new stuff, right? I mean, you have that initial moment where it might, you know, con- uh, contrast your memory of playing the original, but it seems like it's a natural evolution of the station in a way that it fits, right? And so I don't have a problem with stuff like that. It was, you know, to Neil's point though, about like the gator section, little moments like that. And it's like having that inclusion in a, like a chase sequence instead of the actual kind of boss battle, like in the original was one of those moments where I was just like, oh, that's a shame to not have that moment in the game. But, you know, I guess at the end of the day, if I'm looking at the big picture, it's not something that kind of, derails the entire experience for me but it is something where if i was going to have a studio remaking a game i would want them to try to do it as best or as accurately as they could i suppose you know i'm pretty sure this game had sort of a neil correct him i'm sure uh this game had somewhat of a rocky development cycle up until its release where they had to cut some content um i think there was something along those lines that resulted in uh why you know that moment specifically it was more of just a cutscene rather than like actual gameplay. I'm pretty sure. There's a couple of things that are definitely missing um, that don't feel like they're missing just by choice, especially in enemy types. I think Um, that little period of uh, Capcom history where they are sort of reviving Resident Evil, you know, there's a lot of shared assets, lots of let's get this done on a certain budget and get them all out one after the other and make it almost like an annual series, but not which is fine because I think that was the perfect thing for what they were doing right then. And they rode that sort of wave perfectly up until, you know, getting Village out where they could sort of push things a little further. But yeah, you know, stuff like the Gator sequence, stuff like, you know, the spiders not being there at all, you know, and between the two games. And, you know, going back to the, you know, Nemesis Resident Evil 3 with the remake there where there's a whole swathes of stuff that really should have been in there. And to the point where it makes you think, well, maybe you could have combined these two things together if you really wanted and made some sort of super cut sort of thing of it as they all sort of take place in that same sort of timeline. But again, I get it for what Capcom were doing at the time. You know, they were coming back from a point where they were sort of struggling to sort of get what Western audiences wanted. And, you know, they were slow on the uptake with some stuff and, you know, 
irking fan bases with stuff like Resident Evil 6 and, you know, DMC Devil May Cry, uh, which, you know, that game at least is good in its own right, but not what people want. Uh, and then you look what happens to stuff like Dead Rising, and it just goes on and on and on. And so I turned, yeah. sorry, sorry, I yeah. turned Resident Evil 6 on. Yeah. And I played it for, I think, five to ten minutes. <laughs> and I literally shut it I off. Know. And I was like, well, which is, I guess I'm not playing Resident Evil games yeah, anymore. Yeah, which is like the only one, you know, the mainstream ones, you know, that, that I would say it deserves that credit. I mean, that the Ada sections in that game just make me go, what is this? You know, this isn't, I get that you're trying to sort of diversify what's going on in the game and having these different chapters and different styles. But it's like, it doesn't make sense. And it just, it stops being a worthwhile thing to do. So, but yeah. Yeah. I was like, why is this a Steven Seagal movie all of a sudden? What is, what is going on right now? Why am I, why am I repelling off a helicopter? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm wearing these yellow tinted glasses like I'm Steven Seagal. I'm just like, look, I like to watch bad Steven Seagal movies, but I don't want to play bad Resident right. Evil games. Yes. It's like, well, funny enough, I think it is the point in the series where it's trying to be what it was and what it would, it turned into at the same time. And, yeah, you know, ending up with this tonal mess where it could do neither, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's where, you know, seven onwards is a great reset point because it starts to go back to, no, okay, we'll try and remember more of what happened in the past and kind of forget this point where we were looking at the movies and going, well, people like those. So let's just make the games more like that. And it's thankfully we, we got out of that slump and, uh, yeah. and, uh, turned the corner. So bringing up the, the alligator sequence, they left one of my favorite points out of resident evil 2 as well i remember playing the game and i brought up the dogs earlier yeah. in resident evil 2 like right when you get in the police station and you're going down a corridor there's the window mm. and the and the liquor comes off from the outside of the window you just see it Ooh. crawl by and you're just like wtf <laughs> what was that what am i in store for and you don't expect to see it quickly because the first video game, the hunters don't come till late, right? Mm. And to me, the liquors are just the hunters of Resident Evil 2, like the whole, like an advanced enemy. And that thing is there like right away. And you're just like, oh, I got to fight these immediately. <laughs> what is going yeah, on? Yeah, especially when you just got to the police station and you survived all the stuff on the streets. You get there and you think, okay, time to relax, time to collect myself. There will probably be zombies, but, you know, I'm safe. I'm indoors. To go. And then they just throw that extra sort of wrench in in there it's it's a brilliant sort of moment to happen you know it is a shame that you know it doesn't really come across the same way in the the remake because you know they, they do the clues of the, you know the guy who's been basically eviscerated but <laughs> at that point it's like everyone's used to come across as being eviscerated so it's like <laughs> right it's like what's well, done it i mean we know to a degree but i think at the same time around that you know there's like a body hanging from the ceiling that's been like impaled on something yeah. on a pipe and it's like well mm-hmm. that could be a liquor but it's a, you know it seems very much it could just be mr x as well so yeah it, it's a strange sort of change but i get where you don't want to get too homage heavy and as i was saying earlier it's like you don't want it to start feeling like a nostalgia act you you don't want it to True. just keep going yeah you remember this and this bit that reminds you of this it's like they were trying to go for something more compact and I, I yeah, can appreciate that, but I'm sad that they didn't sort of, you know, signal that what was going to come in the same way, because that always used to fill me with dread that, that window scene. Yeah. Cause I always knew what was coming after that. 
And it's like the minute the liquors go, come into the picture, it's just, oh, no. You know, one element that's new to the remake that I'm, I'm more of a fan of on my most recent playthrough is the ability to board up the windows, right? And so, you know, once you run through the city streets and you kind of have this false sense of security with the, you know, the walls of the police station and whatnot, you're like, all right, I can catch my breath. And then that first yeah. time that you see one of the zombies banging against the window and then it comes crashing through is kind of like an oh fuck moment, not only because it catches you off guard, but also the idea that if you don't handle this window like immediately or prioritize this, you're going to have to you're going to start chewing through ammo. And the fact that, you know, this hallway now is going to be filled with more of them. Uh, little additions like that. I think, again, we were talking earlier about, you know, modernizing the horror of the original one and throwing little curveballs like that, that, you know, for it's going to have the same re, uh, response from whether or not you're somebody that played the original or if you're coming to this for the first time. And if anything, if you're a fan of the original like we are, that moment is even scarier because it's like, oh, shit, this wasn't in the original one. What else could be different? What else could they throw at me that I'm not expecting? Um, little moments like that, I think, again, are like a smart modernizing of the uh, the horror potential of the game. And it stops it from solely being this, you know, just nostalgia act like, oh, we're going to let you run through these halls with these halls, but they're prettier or just the zombies look scarier because they're, you know, are in uh, they, the high definition and whatnot. But so having those structural differences that don't fundamentally change the game, I really am a, uh, a fan of. And I think that, you know, it, that might have been something that the uh, Resident Evil 3 remake maybe got carried away with a little bit, changing things a little more fundamentally. Um, but for this remake, I think that, you know, little things like that do a good job of, um, you know, evolving the horror without rewriting the horror yeah. of Resi. And they picked great spots for those mm. windows. Yeah. Um, so the, I mean, the hallways are great, but the one part that I come back to with the, the boarding up the windows is on the first floor when you got to go back down that initial side hallway mm. and get into one of those offices. I think you cut the chains off of yeah. and get in there. Yeah. And there's like three windows in there that you can mm. board up. And if you're not ready and you don't have your boards with you, you walk in there and you're just like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And when I went <laughs> back through it, I forgot about that. And I didn't have the window boards with me. And it's just absolute chaos in there. You're just running around like, I need to get this. I need to get this. I need to get this. And you're booking it to the door. And you're just like, oh, man, I really should have brought those those boards with me for this. And, and you just don't. So, the, yeah, that chaos, that adrenaline rush that you're getting while playing the game is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know considering the amount of backtracking that is inherent to Resi, it makes those areas, you know, you have to reapproach them with the same sense of caution that you would the first time you went through them. Uh, especially as if you said, you know, if who is really ready to board up all those windows on their first playthrough? Nobody is. Um, and so, you know, that re-weaponizing certain areas doesn't make, I feel like I don't get fatigued with the backtracking in Resi the same way I might with another game that is, uh, you know, a little heavier with the backtracking. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to run through this area full speed because I've killed everything. There's no reason to, you know, keep on guard or anything. And, you know, when you're playing this on the harder difficulties, it really does ratchet up the tension that much more. And it makes every encounter feel like the first encounter in terms of, you know, just how intense it is. Uh, and that adrenaline doesn't dissipate uh, as quickly maybe as it would if you didn't have to, you know, deal with that. Um, I also have to say, one of the elements of this that is still as terrifying as the first time I played it is your encounters with Mr. X. 
Um, that absolutely terrifies me to my core when he lifts up that chopper and then just goes right into following you around the police station. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that moment is one that I still come back to constantly and think about just because that idea of you being stalked throughout the police station and that, you know, with the one or two sections that he can't follow you, you really do have to, you know, begin to memorize the map almost to a certain extent. Otherwise, if you make one wrong turn and, you know, it only takes two hits, I think, or three hits on the normal difficulty for him to drop you. um, It is something that, you know, can lead to you having to replay the last 10 minutes or something like that, um, that I I just uh, am appreciative of the fact that, you know, there is that enemy type that you can never really kill, right? For as difficult as the liquors can be, as, you know, agile as the dogs are, as, you know, pesky as the uh, um, zombies can be, you know, having that one antagonist that you can't kill um, is something that I think, again, really makes the player have to be thinking and learning about the layout of things as much as they are, uh, you know, conserving ammo and whatnot. Well, when you talk about, like, what did they do right in an update, what they did with Mr. X is amazing in in scale because he was terrifying in the first one when he would jump through the walls at you and and i remember specifically upon watching some of the the run-throughs that from my childhood just that one time you see him on the camera and he's coming down the hallway you're on like that's all terrifying but what they did with him this time where he is this dynamic character that is constantly moving and stalking you like you said it not only is terrifying and scary and updated, it makes your play makes it more replayable because the game is never the same at this point. Like it's not like the old ones where you walk into a room, the zombies are going to start in the same spot. This guy is constantly stalking you throughout the police station. So it changes every time you play the game. Like he's always on the move after you. So I, I think that was one of the great things that they did when they did this remake. Yeah. And to sort of introduce him that early as well. Yeah. You know, because mm-hmm. if you are familiar with the original, you know, you don't really see him much around the first time. It's the second run through where he becomes more prevalent as a thing. And, you know, it, it does just sort of add this sort of new dynamic to it as you said it's like with that and the boarding of windows it, it can create these unique situations where you know you go the wrong way at the wrong time and the decision you decision you didn't make earlier comes back to bite you because oh now a zombie's coming through this window and that's blocking your path but you can't really not shoot them or if you can't dodge them and you can't turn back and it's just little moments like that it's just great because they are very much yours and based on your decisions that go beyond you know just how much ammo you've used or what you put in your inventory it's like that part wasn't really present in the original so that, that's, that's a nice modernization and now you're scared to kill zombies mm. right because <laughs> you don't want that sound yeah. going out there and having this guy showing up on you so it just it cha- even if you were going through and downing every single zombie and had enough ammo now having enough ammo doesn't matter mm. because you don't want this dude showing up and and stalking you the the library especially oh, can yeah. be <laughs> really really tricky yeah. with him like if you're not really sure how to do it and i had my initial playthrough i remember having some issues moving those bookshelves with mr x around and trying to make that you know so 
because that room's filled with zombies and I didn't kill him because I'm like, oh, I could just run around him, blah, 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 blah. And by the time you he's chasing you and you're trying to do this puzzle and he's just coming up and you're just like, man, I got to run all around this police station again to try to lose this guy. <laughs> and uh, it just adds it adds another scary thing, but it adds to every puzzle in every room that you yeah. enter. Like, am I trying to let this guy know where I am? Mr. That's X it. basically is a puzzle in and of himself, right? I mean, just hearing those mm-hmm. footsteps thudding and getting closer and closer, it makes everything that you're doing, whether or not he's in the room with you, there is that, you know, it's the monkey on your back that you can't get off, basically. Um, and, you know, one detail that I th- I'm pretty sure I remember correctly from the original was if you downed him in the original, he would drop, I think, a little ammo or something like that. So it was the thing where it was like, oh, maybe if I can drop him, I'll get ammo for, you know, one of my heavy weapons or something like that, that would make it beneficial. But in this one, that's not the case. So it's basically just like, that's your punishment for not being able to, you know, maneuver the environments quickly enough or smartly enough. Um, You just down him momentarily, but you don't get a little reward or anything. Yeah, making him sort of take a knee is just odd. It just terrifying in its own right because you're just there thinking the first time you come into that and you think okay I'll attack him head on and take him out of the game for a bit like that no he's just going to sort of drop to one knee just sort of sit there have a little breather and then you know before you know it he's back up again it's like I remember just looking at him the first time thinking is he going to go down like that and then yeah so there he goes up and you just realise you've wasted your time and your ammo just to go and do all that I suppose the only issue that ends up coming up with that is not directly to Resident Evil 2, but then to the remake of 3, because a nemesis doesn't get to be the same kind of thing. Because, And I think that might have been a big problem with where that game ended up going design-wise, is you've already done a lot of his tricks with Mr. X, and you know, that was always Nemesis's key thing. You know, it's like, oh, he follows you around. You know, you don't know where he's going to show mm-hmm. up. You know, you do once you script it after a while. But yeah, then it, it the fact that he wasn't like that in in the remake, and you know, it was very much a despite that opening where it's pushing this idea of him being this relentless assassin. He just doesn't show up anywhere near as often compared to Mister X, and I think that to me has always been the biggest detriment to the remake of Free is that it just kind of nullifies the impact that Nemesis makes. And that unfortunately, is a side effect of what Mr. X brings. Right, because everything they do with, with Nemesis is done better yeah. with Mr. X. He has a better environment. Um, they didn't they didn't have a structure, really, in the 3 remake to, to have him stalk you around because you're outside. Yeah. And yeah, he could stalk you through the streets, but being in an enclosed building with this thing that you hear. And that's the other thing Mr. X brings out is not only are you like looking around now, you're, you're listening at all times. So you're introducing another sense constantly. You're listening for footsteps and that is terrifying in itself. It's like, okay, I can hear him. I think he might be upstairs in this room over (laughs) here. Maybe, maybe I have time. And then you open the door and you just see him coming down the hallway and you just go, oh shit. And you have to book it and try to like hide. And you're just like, and on the couch playing the game or in your chair or whatever, you stop breathing. You'll get into a room and you're just yourself. You're just like, 
and you're just sitting there still and you're like, please don't hear me. Please don't hear me. Like, like you're in the room with them. Right. So being in a building helps add to that element for me, you know, maybe for other people, nemesis stalking them on the streets is a tad scarier to each their own. But for me being in this enclosed building that I can't escape and knowing this thing is walking around is a bit more terrifying. Yeah, definitely. The first time you have a door fly open in your face and it's him and he puts his hand on the frame and ducks under like that again is such a pants shitting moment every single time. It doesn't matter how many times (laughs) I encounter that um, just because of the way that it's crafted. And, you know, if you ever get caught in a corner or something by him or get grabbed by him, it's always this thing where it's like, that's my bad. It's not that, you know, it's unfair or cheap or whatever. It's that, no, it's, you need to be better about, you know, cognizant of your environments. And, you know, again, get playing that uh, sort of survival game of like, oh, is he one room away? Is he two rooms away? Um, And trying to, you know, squeeze out one extra second of picking something up uh, in an environment and, you know, doing a, a risk analysis, basically, is it worth venturing to the other side of the room to grab that one herb? But I might get cornered over there. And so it's like, I could always come back and, you know, weighing those options, um, especially when, again, you know, you're doing a good deal of backtracking. That's the nature of these games. But it adds a layer of complexity to the environment that never really leaves until you venture down into the lab. Mm. I will say that the the fact that he's a silent antagonist, too, yeah. adds to it. Now, they've they've updated this a little bit in Village with Lady Demetress, who comes through the doorway, which is terrifying in its own right. But she's more vocal and, you know, somewhat terrifying. I'm not saying she's not scary. She is. She adds a lot to that game Mm. for me. But just to your point, this guy just opening this door, coming down underneath it and not saying anything. His focus is getting you. He's not telling you. He's not mad at you. He's not angry at you. He has no emotion. He's just there to destroy you. Yeah. yeah I mean, it is. Yeah, I think like this and Freeze remake do both get the Terminator vibes pretty spot on in yeah. their own ways. Yeah, I mean, uh, Mr. X is very much a constant threat in that sense. But, you know, the, the opening hour of uh, Free is basically, you know, it's very Terminator-esque, you know, with the musical stabs that you get and stuff like that. Just, you cannot shake this thing. Uh, but yeah, there's something about Mr. X, you know, and the that really does have that Terminator vibe because you know the, the trying to appear human in a very absurd fashion. You know, it's like you know, in the same way that Arnold Schwarzenegger would stand out in a crowd very easily, you know, just wearing normal clothes. You know, you know this seven foot tall thing in a trench coat and a trilby hat isn't exactly <laughs> going to um, be inconspicuous. <laughs> I mean, right. it, 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 stop and think about it for a minute. You're like. Why is he wearing a hat and a trench coat? Really, it's like there's no need. It's like, but yeah, it, which is you know, if design-wise, I would say you know, I'm very much like what Free does with Nemesis, where they had you know the sort of shrink wrap bin bag style, where he does just feel like a product that has been made to you know, he's a shrink wrapped and right, you know, they take off the rubber. There he is. He's out to uh, take you on. But yeah, I, I love the absurd nature of, of Mr. X and the fact that he's just presented as this human looking thing, which I think has its merit. I think you know, the idea of seeing something that looks like it's human it might just put you off those few seconds it takes for it, it, it to kill you, you know? So it, it's, 
I, I see the worth in in doing that. Yeah, it's like Mr. X watched the original Ninja Turtles movie and he saw Raphael go to the surface <laughs> and the trench coat and the hat. He goes, that worked. I'm going to do that. I'm going to I'm going to wear that out. If a turtle can do it, I can do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to unpack a little bit more about um, Mr. X and also, you know, the variety of creature designs in this game. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will uh, dive more into that. And we are back from our break. And yeah, Neil, something that you just said a minute ago, um, I think really resonated with me uh, in the sense of like thinking about Mr. X and him being designed and he looks, you know, human other than the fact that he is this gray seven foot thing. Um, But, you know, it is that type of creature design that stands out in a game that is mostly, you know, decaying flesh and, uh, you know, all sorts of horrific mutations. But having one character that that is the closest to resembling human other than Claire or Leon, right? Um, it does stand out in a way that adds an intensity that doesn't sort of rely on some of the perhaps tricks and trades of the standard resi uh, creature design. Mm. Yeah, it, it does just add an, a new layer to, to things. That we, I think this it makes another parts of the game refreshing as well. Um Notably in Claire's campaign, where you take control of Sherry, you know, for a bit, and you have a very real human enemy in Chief Irons, who was always one of the most fascinatingly repulsive parts of the original game to me. And I was always wanting more of that character because it's like he felt very much like a pastiche, but to see someone who is very much benefiting from the chaos of all this and is kind of responsible for it in his own little way, it's like and tries to worm his way out and then just gets brutalized. It, it was nice to see him get a wider range of things to do, you know, as a, a human villain in in this, which, um, you know, I think we don't really get anywhere else properly. So this was, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that about it. And, you know, that if, I don't know if anyone played the DLC thing as well with the, you know, the, the uh, sort of, prequel thing if you will with him and the girl but you know and again it just goes a long way to make making that a really effective villain you know and so yeah having humanoid villains that really sort of yeah i mean it's a very cliche thing these days say in zombie stuff oh the real monster is man and all that but you get different versions of that here you know where you get things that look very familiar you know zombies yeah okay they were human but they're very visibly not Right, you know, and you know, the skin slopping off and whatever, but you know, something like Mr. X is that sort of uncanny level of human, you know, where it's like, okay, it's like you would, it wouldn't be unusual to see someone who is seven foot tall, but it is still like out of the ordinary for most people to say, oh, okay, so yeah, and it just would have that little moment of disbelief, you know, and I think that is probably the clearest sort of homage to what the terminator does in terms in that sort of here's this person whose physique doesn't really work but you can see maybe why they made that physique the size it is in the same way the tyrant is anyway um it's made big and has its heart on the outside because you know the way they had to make it meant that that's how they had to make it so it is vulnerable but and they had to make it huge to make it work so it's a a design deficiency that probably would get sort of revised in time if umbrella had had the time but yeah it's 
frightening in its own way. You know, and I think Terminator shows us that, doesn't it? You know, when you get to the sequels and you get, you know, the lean amino sort of very, very much the sort of enemies that you know, can blend in very well. You know, and um, yeah, so I liken that aspect very much to Terminator in that regard with that enemy. But yeah, having, you know, no trust in anything you see and anyone you see is, you know, a thing that is very familiar with us now, you know, with zombie media, but the way Resident Evil 2 does it, yeah, especially, is, I really, really enjoy the way it does it. Yeah, it's almost like Mr. X is the prototype to yeah. you know, to the nemesis, yeah. right? So that that's that's what they do there. I not to not to change topics, but I thought you brought up a really interesting point of Resident Evil Two when you start talking about Chief Irons. Mm. And what I think Resident Evil Two does better than any other game in the series um, is the split stories between Claire and Leon, mm. where they they have. Although they're working towards like a common goal, their pathways are different and their stories are different. And I think they're both really, really well done. Um, I, I'm i not going to say that I love playing as Sherry or Ava in this game. I didn't really enjoy those parts. But the story as a whole that they're telling between Claire and Leon, like I, I just think it's so well done. And unlike any other game in the series with with that aspect of like the dual characters yeah for me anyways yeah they, they remixed what the original games did and in a way that is refreshing you know where mm-hmm. it was very much here's the same story twice but if you play through the second time it's different and here they sort right. of say no we'll take bits from each and sort of you know work it around that way you know and give you know birkin to one side give and mr x to another and yeah. I, I think that works a lot better because then you have two very clearly different things, you know, and, and that's what you need because I think what I could say one complaint of the original is that it does sort of blend into itself a bit when you get to that point. You have Mr. X and then you have Birkin and you have the other sort of weird things that come out of it as well. And it's like, you know, I, I really love the William Birkin mutations. You know, they, they were, they were always great and here they, they are just, just beautifully disgusting. But <laughs> it, it, it's just, they are the perfect sort of update of what they were. But yeah, it is nice to have them be on separate sides and do their separate things. Do you guys, do either of you have like a favorite story? Do you like Claire's story better? Do you like Leon's story better? I mean, I always used to love Leon's personally. You know, it's like, but mm-hmm. the, yeah, I think these days, I think Claire's is just more of what I enjoy because, you know, it has irons. It has Birkin, and there's more background on that story as well. So yeah, you know, I, the whole weird romance angle that goes on in Leon's thing that isn't a romance. It's it's funny in back in the day because you know how like he's he's the naive cop who keeps getting duped by her. But I don't know. It got tired by the when that story went on. I didn't really care, and it's not really a character I care about that much beyond leon so yeah yeah i think claire's has definitely risen to be the more impactful side uh, in the remake for me i think give or take in the original it was like in the same way that jill and chris were like okay small benefits changes here but otherwise it's just a case of who do i want to play as yeah Mm. 
But yeah, yeah, Claire is definitely the winner for me. What about you, Jay? Yeah, I, I ran Claire this time. Um, and I really, and, you know, to, you know, champion some of the things Neil's been saying, like the whole Chief Iron segment of it, um, I find to be not only more profoundly disturbing than maybe some of the stuff with Birkin, granted, you know, the boss battles aside, like the story surrounding Birkin doesn't interest me a great deal, but like that Chief Iron segment um, is really, really disturbing for me because I find that to be probably one of the most grounded characters in the Resident Evil 2 and, you know, maybe even one of the most grounded villains in the series just because it shows somebody that's being this opportunist, right? What does he do when the world goes to hell? He pursues his own, you know, uh, devious behaviors and yearnings, right? And seeing him finally being able to, you know, do those things now that, you know, there's no uh, oversight or law and order, uh, which, you know, supposedly he's supposed to be. Um, it kind of just has this element of like, oh, this is, you know, Neil, as Neil said, uh, you know, there's that trope of uh, man is the real evil, not zombies. But they really do capture it in that Sherry section. Um, you know, as Rob said, I'm not crazy about sort of the sneaking around as Sherry, but I think that putting you in her shoes and just being pursued by this force that is basically like her version of Mr. X um, is pretty terrifying, especially when, you know, he says some of the things that he says and just, you know, how evil he is and that he's doing this, he's preying upon this child. Um, and I think also in the DLC, it's smart that they give you that little prequel section of the girl that you see on the table uh, later mm -hmm. when you return to that area. Um, I I was really a fan of those little DLC moments, by the way. I think that was a cool way to kind of yeah. um, expand. It has this kind of like time run element to it. But at the same time, it was just nice to play through the game from another perspective. And, you know, it doesn't end up fundamentally changing anything, obviously, about the experience. But it's just cool to see the world of Resi through the untraditional uh, viewpoints, yeah. I think. I think that that was the biggest takeaway of Resident Evil 7. You know, it's that it brought all these, you know, from the teaser onwards, it brought mm. you these different perspectives that weren't in the main game. And that is the perfect, sure, they kind of stole that from PC, you know, the idea of like, oh, here's a teaser for the game, but it isn't the game sort of thing. But, but yeah, and you know, many things they stole from the, the death of that. But, you know, it worked. And I think it was, really a catalyst for what made Resident Evil going forward such an interesting thing again is that you were just sort of expanding in a way that you know the the SD Perry books used to do you know where they, they would just sort of add these sort of little layers to stories you were well versed in and you know you'd have all these little backstories and like more on the characters you've been playing as and it felt more like real people and then to go back to the games you could kind of imprint that on the characters even though you don't see that in the games themselves so yeah it's nice to have that in actual game form you know and really sell what's going on there it's just a shame we didn't really get much of that after you know with free mm. and then even with village you know i know now they've just had the, the dlc but it wasn't that same sort of like micro level of things beyond the maiden demo you know for village so but you know they're still doing it which is important. Yeah. I, I do want, I, I would be very curious to see what they do with the remake of four. If they do add a bit of uh, context to stuff beyond what we know, you know, and uh, guess to see certain characters in the new light. For, for me, Claire is also my favorite 
of the two stories. Yeah. Not that I don't like Leon. I love the way that they remade Leon in this yes. game, like the personality wise and everything. It's just so much more fitting. You go back and I forgot how much they just made him like a nineties action guy <laughs> in the original. Like the, the line that stuck out to me is right at the end of the game. He's, he goes, finally it's over. <laughs> and then Claire's like, no, we still have to find my brother. He goes, you're right. It's just <laughs> begun. And you're just like, all right, relax, Leon. So they, they make him more of like this like normal guy who's going to be a cop and showing up for the first time. Yeah. So I do like that. But everything you guys said about Chief Irons is spot on. And just to expand upon it a little bit, it's he's using this opportunity to indulge in like his psychotic behavior. Yeah. But what's even scarier is what was he doing beforehand yeah. and how was he using his position as the chief of police to help cover that up? Right. So he's just this evil, evil character. And he's only like this really side guy that we could have had a whole game around in a whole different universe. Right. And seeing all of that play out even more, but not too much, which is they, I think they did it just enough in this game where you see how much of a monster he is. And I, I love that story for Claire, um, myself. Yeah, and just to go back on what you're saying about the improvements to uh, Leon, you know, one of the good things about um, the film Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, was Avanyoya as um, Leon. You know, because I think he really encapsulated the Leon that we kind of know from everything you know he had a goofiness to him he was like you know the guy on the first day, day of the job sort of thing and you know still had a little of that glimmer of what leon once was with this whole trying to have one-liners and things like that but he's silly you know and mm-hmm. i think most of that comes through from the actor rather than from the, the script in that film but it is nice to see that yeah, for everything that film may not have done well, I think it got a lot of the characters really well. Yeah, and um, yeah, that that was a key one. I was like, yeah, I, I. It's nice to see Leon being done properly on screen, and you know, compared to the previous movies, where yeah, it's like so many of those characters just got done done so dirty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, well, to your to your point on this Resident Evil Four remake, if they're sticking with this Leon from the two remake. That's going to change the tone mm. of the game tremendously, right? Because you can't go from what he was in this two to remaking what he was in that version of four. Mm-hmm. His his personality is better now. He'll be more. He'll be smarter. He'll be a little bit more hardened. But you don't change your complete personality, right? So I think that that's what gives me some hope for Resident Evil Four. What doesn't give me hope for Resident Evil 4 is I didn't hate Village, but it seemed like Village started going right back to that action-y style more so than the the horror and the sure. bullet conservation Yeah, stuff. I mean, the, the good part of that for me was that it started feeling like it was being silly in the right way, you know, towards the end. Mm. And I... A lot of the stuff that I like about Village tends to be in line with stuff like Kovaraka, you know, where it is yeah. peak Resident Evil, you know, absurd nonsense and, you know, shrill characters and over-the-top mm-hmm. personalities. Because when you cut to the core of what Resident Evil is, it's a story about people who are usually long dead that mm-hmm. have created this environment that is absolutely bananas. 
you know, you know, when your whole town is a series of fucking puzzles because, he, <laughs> yeah. because you were bored and you had enough money to say, well, this mansion is a puzzle, this police station is a puzzle, there's a lab underneath the, the city and, and yeah. Yeah, all these things. It's, I love that. You know, it's so exquisite that we can have this level of nonsense going on, you know, and it all mm-hmm. feels right. And then you go to something like Code Veronica where it's like, yeah, here's these weird fucking twins who aren't twins and like that, you know, again, going back to very obvious um, reference points, you know, that's a very De Palma sort of thing in that. But um, yeah, it just feels perfect for that series. And I think what Village has done well is that, you know, towards the end. I love Heisenberg as a character more than, you know, I think Lady Dimitrescu is interesting and I get why that was a focal point, but I don't think it's the big selling point that it should have been, you know, I think needed to be better and more, more of the game, you know, in the same way that Nemesis mm-hmm. should have been more of the game in the free remake. Mm. Uh, I, I think there are other interesting characters beyond her, which is Village's strength, to be fair. You know, I, I think all, yeah. all the lords and ladies of that group really do work well. In their own ways, you know. So, you know, from Moreau to Eisenberg to, to Benevier, to, yeah, they all bring something to the table that feels fundamentally Resident Evil. What my concern is there is in much the same way that two kind of steps on the toes of what Free needed to do, I mm-hmm. feel Village kind of has done the same with Four. You know, it, it's so close to Four in so many ways. I'm kind of thinking, well, Four's going to really have to go in a different direction. And I think they are. I think there's a darkness to this remake that wasn't there before, where it feels... I suppose if, if you were to compare, you would say the original was closer to what Evil Dead was, and then this one is closer to Fede Alvarez's version, you know, in terms of, like, it, it's in the forest, cabins in the woods, blah, 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 but it's yeah, going to be yeah. gorier and meaner and more cynical and... That's probably the perfect way to go. If you're going to remake that game, make it meaner, make it feel more like Resident Evil, where it's more mean and brutal. Mm. But, you know, it knows when to have a sense of humor. I would rather the silliness be the extent of that in the Resident Evil 4 remake, uh, you know, pairing a chainsaw with a knife, right? If that's going to be the extent of the silliness, <laughs> I would be cool with that if that's where it showed up. But I think, you know, to both of your points... If you're going to go from two to three, having redone the tone of those, you really can't introduce the kind of 90s Leon again for the Resi 4 remake, because then it's kind of like, okay, what are we really doing here then? If we're going to keep, you know, boomeranging these tones, it ends up feeling like a very inconsistent era almost, especially with, you know, thinking about uh, seven and onwards, even though something like Village does get more action oriented and, uh, you know, I frankly hate the ending section of that where you play as Chris, right? And you get the assault rifle where it's basically just like Uh, a big action movie. That's the part personally that I don't enjoy at all. But I think at the very least, it does still retain that darker, more serious tone for a majority of the game um, that was, you know, reestablished with Seven and then, you know, with the remakes Mm -hmm. and everything. Um, You know, while we're sharing sort of favorite moments from Resi 2, something that in the remake that I really enjoyed and actually gave me a more favorable opinion of than when I played it in the original was the lab section uh, in the remake. And that's mostly because those plant enemies feel like a version of like the reanimators almost from Resi 4, um, where you have to, you know, target those basically like, I guess you want to call them like little 
plant sacks or something. You have to pinpoint them and take them out to drop them for good. Um, and then you don't even really drop them for good unless you, uh, what you have to light them on fire, I think. Um, but that again is like a really smart way to not only maybe, you know, rework a section of a game that didn't work for somebody the first time around, but it does make that section, you know, a lot more strategic, right? Even though you might be, have better resource management this time around, or, you know, have an influx of ammo, it is still the thing that you have to have the pinpoint accuracy to drop them. Um, and I think that that rejuvenated that entire section for me in a way that it ended up being one of my favorite parts of the game, whereas previously I kind of was so-so on it. Yeah, I think actually the point you brought up with the Chris section from Village ties into this very well, where having a submachine gun going through these games is like <laughs> eh i kind of want a pistol i kind of want a shotgun i, I don't want to be firing a million rounds so i want the the horror aspect of when i have to hit something i don't want to just be spraying right like and i know you can in this game as well but like i'd rather be going through like if you want to terrify me make it so that all my shots have to count like everything I do has to count, right? So that's why I think this section is probably a little bit better as well. And then, like you said, having to light them on fire is, you know, you have to because you got to go back through yep. these parts. You have to drop these guys. Like, yeah, I think it's done really well in this Even one. in, you know, with Claire in Resi 2 when she gets that submachine gun, I think that that balances out what you would normally view as being like, oh, well, now she's just going to be unstoppable because she's going to be mowing through these things. But that gun deals barely any damage and it's wildly yeah. inaccurate. Whereas when you get to that Chris section, you know, maybe it's fitting that you feel like a superhero at the end of Resi Village, which is intentional. But I think coming back to, you know, Resi 2, I never necessarily feel like I always have the upper hand, you know, with Claire, you know, her getting the grenade launcher right up front. Typically in a in a video game in general, right? Anything that you point that at is immediately, you know, eviscerated into nothing but giblets and whatnot. Um, but in this, you know, sure, you will have the upper hand on the heavier enemies, but you're still thrown enemies that need a several grenade launcher rounds. Or sometimes it only drops an enemy and it doesn't kill them outright. Um, so, again, that mm -hmm. is a really great way, I think, of just retaining the horror and never allowing Leon or Jill or... Um, Claire to feel like they are, you know, super soldiers or something. Um, and I think that that's a great way to, you know, never allow the player to feel, you know, too safe because then it ends up being like, well, I guess survival isn't that much of a big part of this then because anything that I come up against, I can just drop immediately. Um, and I think that that plant section um, in the lab really does a great job of just instilling that. Yeah. You've got to look at it in a weird way because because these games are all coming out together and you're basically jumping backwards and forwards in time constantly, it can feel a bit odd to sort of go from a character to a more vulnerable to, you know, badasses that can like, mow down whales at a counter. <laughs> and, but, you know, you, when you think in actual time constraint, time periods, it's like, yeah, okay, well, Chris from that period to now, has been doing this shit for years. So it makes perfect sense that he would be, you know, oh, of course I'm going to bring every fucking weapon to the party. I know what I'm dealing with. You know, it, it, it's perfect for, for his story. Um, sure, you could say, well, then why are you putting him in a Resident Evil game at that point? But, you know, 
and I still kind of question that with Resident Evil 7 to Village, where I don't think he really needs to be in it. Yeah. Really? It's like, mm. not to mention it, it's one of about 500 fake outs we've had with Chris Redfield, <laughs> which is like, where it's like, is he a bad guy? Is he dead? He's neither. Right. Yeah, and it, it just gets a bit tired, you know, it's like, and now we, he's got, you know, the plot armor of being alive many years into the future that we know that they aren't going to kill him off now. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's, it is what it is. So I think we can expect Leon to be a bit more seasoned by the time we get to Resident Evil 4 remake because that's the way of it. But yeah, I don't think he should be quite Chris levels. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't want to see them say, well, you know how he did like the suplex and all that in the original? Let's have him do mm-hmm. Hurricane Ranas and fucking doing <laughs> Swanton yeah. Bombs. I, I think you we know? can yeah. still expect him to be, you know, diving out of uh, second story windows and perfectly barrel rolling out of that. <laughs> Just he has to do a hero pose. That's, that, that, is, that is on the list now. You know, you can't do a modern game without doing a hero pose as you fall out from a great height. That, that's it. So, in fairness, I have to do that before every episode of Hometown Ghost Stories just to make sure that I establish dominance over my co host. Yeah, so. this is it. I mean, I'll say this now the older you get, the harder that gets. So it's like, <laughs> I, 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 I can just about do it off a sofa now. So. Wait till you see the bills I'm sending to Bloody Disgusting for all of that. Um, One of my problems with this game, and I just kind of want to ask you guys if you see this, and I don't think it's just this game. They really did it in 3 a lot, and I've seen it in games like Uncharted. I think games are holding your hand a little bit too much now versus Mm. in, in previous. Like, you had to figure shit out. Like, Resident Evil 2, good luck. Find where to go. Yeah. And they do this thing now where they lay out your path in yellow. They're not telling you where to go, yeah. but if you look for something yellow, it's like, oh, okay, I can go there. Or, And I remember 3, the remake, being a lot more of this. They didn't do it too much in 2. But I don't like that. I don't like being... I don't like being given that hint from a video game. I want to figure it out. Part of, part of the reason I love Resident Evil games was the puzzles and trying to figure out where I'm supposed to go. So, I just I don't know. Do you, do you guys get that in when you're playing games now? There you go, Jake. Yeah, I, yeah. I definitely think that um, probably from also it's more influenced by marketing. Like I think that they're terrified that people are going to get their hands on a game and immediately be frustrated mm-hmm. by it and bounce off of it. And then, you know, again, just talking about the threshold for what's viewed as a success now is astronomical because it's ba- basically, it feels like it's based off of the two biggest games or something at that time period that are selling the most. And it's like, well, why are they selling the most? Why are they so popular? Because they're not super frustrating because people don't hit these walls that, you know, back in the day, as we know, as people that have played the original Resi games, there's definitely like periods of playing those games where you're running around in circles trying to figure out what the fuck to do. But then at the end of that, right, through that, you know, re-exploration of retracing your steps of experimenting, you have that aha moment that is solidified in your brain as, oh, shit, I finally figured that out. And I didn't need to call a hint number or look on a forum if, you know, forums were even around at the time of some of these games. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. that with these games, the more uh, modernized remakes it is that thing where it's like they want to make these as accessible as possible. And we talked about the benefits of that, right? And that you're yeah. modernizing the way that it controls, the fact that you know maybe it's a little easier in terms of difficulty if you're just playing on normal, 
little things like that that make it easier to recommend to people that aren't hardcore horror fans or people that have a great reverence for the classic Resi experience. Um, personally, I'm in the camp where I was like, I would like a little less handholding um, just because, you know, then it deprives me of those moments that I just talked about, right? It's less of these aha moments. And it's like, well, I'm basically being kind of funneled to this exact place that I need to be at this given time, which takes a little of my own agency out. Um, mm. You know, I guess that ties into what we were talking about with the remake and, you know, preserving the lineage of something or the identity of something. Um, because yeah. if I recommend this to one of my buddies, the remake, they're like, oh, yeah, I mean, I, would, I don't know if they would say that it's hard, though. Right. And I think that that was mm-hmm. always something that really made survival horror a uh, subgenre standout of horror in general is that those these games were incredibly difficult back in the day because of the nature of not being handholdy of, you know, if you slip up, it only takes one or two hits sometimes to get killed and then you have to retrace your steps. Um, but at the same time, part of me is like, well, I want as many people as possible to be exposed to Resi. And if these modern updatings are things that make more people come to Resident Evil... I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, so that was my my uh, my foot in both <laughs> pools uh, sort of answer. But <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I don't think they did it too bad in two. Like, there's no moments that stand out too much. But again, I think they went overboard in three. So I guess to your point, finding the right balance for that um, is what matters. And if you're a puzzle game, remember that you're a puzzle game. So So... You know, that's that's what I would say. But, yeah, I, I want to hear Neil's take on this as well. Yeah, so I think, yeah, naturally, the remake is easier. There's no doubt about it, even on higher difficulty levels. And I think it's just because, by nature, games are more forgiving to open it themselves up for a more accessible audience. You know, any game with a big budget is going to have to because... Yeah, you know, it's fair, and that's the way you want to get that wider audience in, and you can just tailor that experience a bit more to be for everybody, and I think that's very important. And for me, I, I how I am with games now to how I was then, I don't quite have the patience to be going full on hardcore mode on everything anymore. It's just like mm-hmm. I, I want to play it. I've done this a million times. I, I've I've earned my stripes, you know. But the funny thing is. You know, with the original game, you know, I, I told this story when we were talking about Resident Evil for the anniversary episode that, you know, Resident Evil 2, you know, before I ever played it, I had a, this sort of magazine guide that was like, like screenshot, screenshot, screenshot about every little aspect of the game and the guide all the way through the game that I've just read obsessively before I played that game. Yeah. And even with that, it's not the same. You, you cannot replicate your your thoughts and feelings on that into how you actually act in the moment with that with mm-hmm. the panic of oh shit I've missed a shot oh shit I've done that and I love that about it you know I think there's less of that now um where I you know but then you wouldn't need that kind of sort of step by step play but it made me feel comfortable enough to play Resident Evil 2 back in the day to have that sort of yeah. encouragement and I think in a way what the remake does is add this layer to it that really encourages people to play it beyond their comfort level, you know, and sort of go, well, you're getting a little bit, you're getting a little bit there, come on, just 
take this story a little bit further and it works for them. And I think that is perfect. That, that is, again, the perfect way to push what was to a new level, you know, and to encourage people to attack the game in their own way. And I think that's what you need because the world is a different place. You know, the internet exists. You can just look up a guide for anything if you really are stuck on anything. Right. You know, and back then, yeah, you, a magazine full of screenshots is great and it really gives you a feel for the game in its own way, but it isn't quite the same because it doesn't give you the signposting in the same way. And games were obviously very much more ambiguous in their own right anyway. So I've got no problem with that, with it being easier in any way, shape or form. And with anyone finding it difficult, fine. You know, that, that's cool. Uh, it just, it needed to be, it, it needed to be a more accessible game that kind of led you down the garden path, so to speak. Um, the only thing for me that really, it really takes away from that is that the original kind of felt like this really relentless, endless night that really captured what I loved about um, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, where it really, or even Night of the Living Dead, where you just felt like you were just in a barrage of things going on and you were in the middle of it and it never seemed like you were going to get through the night. And it felt like a whole night. It doesn't quite feel that way in the remake because of the way it's structured. Mm. But I understand why. Yeah. I can see that as well. I mean, it makes sense. You, you, sh to that point, maybe they should have done some more showing the characters getting a little more tired, a little more mm. ragged throughout the campaign. Not that they don't, they do, the, the outfits change a little bit here and there, but maybe like voice tone, and I'm not blaming the voice actors, they're all great, but direction wise, yeah. maybe they should have been like, all right, well, now it's been nine hours that you've been violating zombies, right? Like, your voice isn't going to be the same. You're going to be exhausted. You're going to be a little bit frustrated. Let's hear a little bit of that. Yeah. I think that's a good point because that's something that if you're going to be doing a remake, I think that some of the liberties creatively that they could take could be from a directorial standpoint. You know, if you include something like a cutscene that is, you know, I would referencing what you just mentioned, right? Something that shows that this has been a prolonged period of time, how long they've been there, you know, how this situation yeah. is really, you know, affecting them. Um, I think that that's the type of inclusion that could actually, you know, benefit or push the story further or make characters more personable in a way that doesn't rewrite, again, coming back to that idea mm. of not rewriting the identity or the core experience, but if anything, it's elevating it in a way that doesn't feel as intrusive if as you know if you were going to you know rewrite an entire section of the experience um i would be in mm. favor of changes like that um and you know it's not a long game i think what does yeah, it take most, like yeah. six hours seven hours or something like that so yeah at the most if you know you're like me and haven't played in a number of years and kind of forget certain pathways or whatnot but i think that those are the types of changes that i would be in favor of, of just things that maybe elevate and make them a little more per not personable but just you know <laughs> they've been running through this police station and dealing with this hellish scenario and at times it seems as if they are both a little unfazed um periodically but i think that that's the type of thing that it's like when you're updating something you should feel the need to you know uh, 
maybe amend certain elements of the original that were either a little fantastical or something like that, or maybe weren't as um, well uh, directed as they could have been. No, I just, while we were talking about the character development and the changes from Resident Evil 2, just before we forget to even mention this, what they did with Marvin Mm. in Resident Evil 2 is phenomenal versus what he was in the remake. I mean, versus Mm. what he was in the original. What a great character he is in this game. Like, like emotional emotionally impacting no matter who you play as like they did such a great job the voice acting for him like you hear his like his pain his anguish but like him actually wanting to help out whichever character you are and the tones being slightly different but still helpful for both of them like he might low-key be the best and i like leon and i love claire and they they're acted great but in terms of like displaying a character, Marvin might be the best of the best in this game, yeah. just based on what that character well, I, actor did with I, it. I think that just uh, speaks to what the remake does really well, which is elevate the background characters to be more mm-hmm. than they were, with exceptions. But you know, it, you know, people like Marvin, like you know, the gun shop owner, yeah, it, giving them these extra beats that they didn't get before, where they were just sort of background to your story. Which, you know, I appreciate that about the original one. That, maybe that's why that feels more like it's your story and that's why it feels so relentless and so downbeat and like it's knocking you down at every five seconds. But at the same time, it gives you different perspectives on a night from hell. And I, I like that, yeah. you know, and it's a different approach that I think still works overall for the story here and you know i think you cannot discount that you know even down to you know the birkins as well you know you get to have more of the the secondary characters that were in the original game they got the most you know pathos and ethos about them and yet they were still very much two-dimensional characters here they are you know given a bit more and a bit more tragedy to them. You know, William Birkin was always a very tragic character, but here it's, you know, with less perhaps than he ever got in the original, he is getting this sort of proper story, you know, and getting a proper sadness to what's happening because you've got to know his daughter better. You've got to know his wife better. And you've got to know the, the, horrors of umbrella more you know and it just feels like a more well-rounded story as a result and that's what you needed that if you were going to modernize anything in this game it's that isn't it It is that background story and i was saying earlier about you know the sd perry books and how they did that and this feels like that you know it feels like it's adding to the story in that way and i'm so glad that they, they did not just say, oh, here's that character, here's that character, and just, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead. It's like, they they took the time to push upon us this idea of what these characters could be outside of this environment, what took them to this place. And, yeah, it makes people sympathetic or, or repulsive in the ways that they should be, beyond just, like, you know, the broad strokes that you couldn't help but... Uh, but you know partake in back in 1998 you know so mm. it's great I, i'm really really pleased and that is 
yeah, like I said, that is exactly what you need to do with this story. Yeah, well, I think that the, moving the focus from Umbrella largely, you know, I, I had, maybe I'm misremembering in how it was portrayed in Resi 2, but I remember Umbrella coming up a lot more, just, you know, the portrayal of them as this, you know, as they are, this uh, this conspiracy-laden organization that, you know, is ruling everything. I remember a lot more focus being on that. And in the remake, it feels as if the spotlight is moved from Umbrella to the victims of Umbrella in various ways, which, you know, is the way in which I find it to be, you know, smart in expanding on those stories because you're doing the same thing effectively of painting Umbrella as this horrific company without focusing on the backstory and the lore of them because you see how Umbrella's, you know, uh, corruption of this town and, you know, later on in the world and whatnot. And you see the ripples that that sends and you get to see people from different walks of life and how Umbrella, no matter who somebody is, is still, you know, invading their world with, you know, what they've been up to and whatnot. And I think that this game, again, as we've been saying, like does a great job of expanding on those stories in a way that feels more meaningful than just being like, oh, this is the guy that tells you about the puzzle or these are the people that, you know, is going to evolve into a monster. But they make it so much more personable that those end up being, for me, the real stars of the game. I mean, uh, you know, Leon and Claire, I think, are fine characters. But at the end of the day, I find their narrative to not be nearly as interesting as these small little pockets of people that are being you yeah. know, in, uh, in, impacted by Umbrella and all of their decisions. Um, and I think that that's something that I really hope that they continue with these remakes, right? With Resi 4, think about the ways in which they could expand on the various mm -hmm. characters that you run into. I'm not saying we need a whole backstory for the merchant or anything, but just in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, heightening certain characters that maybe in Resi 4, and, you know, that's where the tonal change could come into place where it's like, oh, if we expand on a backstory here, this could be somebody that maybe was more of a comical figure in the original, but here they could be this tragic figure that, you know, is more tonally in yeah. line with what they're going for. Um, and ultimately, that's what stops them from, you know, getting carried away, perhaps, with the narrative of expanding it. And then maybe they make a misstep and all of a sudden it feels like the story is more of a, a slog than it originally was. Right. Um, I think it's really about that smart deployment of who to which story mm -hmm. to, you know, bolster and uh, hold up rather than maybe focusing too heavily on Neo, on uh, Leon's narrative and just like, oh, let, we could expand on why Leon does this or why he thinks that, which might then again, you know, make the game a little it, more it really than it uh, originally was. characters, you know, in a way that wasn't there before, but they were very much because of the time we we lived in. You know, they were just blank slates for you. You know, they were Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, you know, in every mm -hmm. way, shape and form. Yeah, and that's what you were getting. You know, it's like, in, that's what they looked like everything else is up to you to sort of interpret here there is a real distinction between the two characters and where they go in their story and what their motivations are and how they feel and i think that's really important to making them feel like proper characters which you know gives me hope that they would go back to code veronica just to give claire another shot in the modern era because if, they, if they're going to give leon a shot you know, and her his story, then Claire deserves her story. You know, and I think her story is more interesting of the, of the two from that time period. I would really love to see the Code Veronica story 
told anew and given the refresh it needs, you know, because, you know, mechanically it's one of the hardest games to sort of go back to, you know, from that old era of Resident Evil. But, um, yeah, I just, you know, they did such a good job there. I can't help but think they need, they, they have her in mind to come back to, whether that be in a remake of that game or for the future. Can, can I tell you my code Veronica experience as a kid yeah, go for real it. quick? Yeah, please do. Because it, it kind of, it's, it's such a vivid memory for me. So as a kid, uh, the people that I grew up with, my friends, yeah. they would buy Resident Evil games, right? And then they would invite me to sleep over. And then I would have to play the game for them. So they would, <laughs> you know, it was much before, like, you watch video game streamers on YouTube. And this is the way I equate people watching other people play video games because my friends would make me come over and play resident evil because they were too scared but they wanted to see the story so for code veronica i remember my friend mark he invited me over he's like i just bought code veronica for dreamcast can you come over and play it i want to see it but i'm not playing it myself so i go over to his house and i think he might have just gotten his dreamcast or something and he had no memory card for his dreamcast (laughs) And I go, dude, how are we going to play a Resident Evil game without a memory card? He's like, I don't know. Just let's just see what we can do. I played that game that night for seven hours, seven hours of Resident Evil Code Veronica. (laughs) And then I died. Oh, oh God. (laughs) And then you're wiped. You can't go back. Like, so I never finished Code Veronica because... I was just like, so like, I, I'm like, I can't do this again oh based on the way I did this before. You know, I've run through other games back, but I just, I have that vivid memory of that oh, situation. That, that, that is awful. Uh, that, that, that's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. this is again, very much an old man memory thing, you know, where, where you just do not get that anymore. But right. yeah, it's just like the horrors of that and the idea of having to manually save areas off. Yeah, it, it yeah. really does just intimidate you in a way that you cannot describe. And yeah, to, to not have a memory card or have it fucked up some way. I, I, I remember that with games in the past as well, where it's like a, a sibling had taken a memory card somewhere when I needed it and I hadn't looked mm-hmm. beforehand and were like, oh shit, you know, like, and unlike today where you can sort of suspend resume games and, you know, you can always yeah. say, you fucked. Yeah. And it, I realized once I think it was playing Metal Gear Solid and like doing like three hours of play and then realizing the memory card was gone. And I was like, fuck, where, where is it? Like that. And said sibling was nowhere to be found. So, and you know, back at a point where mobile phones weren't really prevalent, fucked. Yeah, like that, yeah. and I was very, very angry. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that, and it, to this day, I think that soured my opinion on that game, you know, compared to any of the others. So, it, it, it really did just impact you in a way that you just can't replicate. You know, it's like unless you, you know, being masochistic, you aren't going to have it. You, you aren't going to have this. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to suffer for my sins, sort of thing. You know, it's like. It, <laughs> yeah. it, nine times out of ten given the option i'm gonna say give me the option that makes me feel comfortable that's it i think 
I've discussed it before on this podcast. It's like the only games that really are exceptions for me are, you know, uh, soccer, football games and um, XCOM. You know, they're the games that I'm like, give me the fucking hardest thing you've got. You know, I, I want it. I want the misery and the pain of that experience. But anything else like these days, I'm like, fuck off. No, give me ease of use and the story. That, that, that's fine. I, right. I'm so happy with that. But yeah, to, but this is mainly because I had to live through that sort of shit. You know, <laughs> different level of difficulty back then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's an enforced difficulty. Yeah. The, the kind of difficulty that made me play Sonic the Hedgehog for more hours than I played most games. You know, it, it's because you had no choice. You know, it's like finish the game in one run or fuck you. That's it. And that, which is, you know, as a weird kind of panic for me back then, because it was like you have a few hours in a day on a weekend. If you don't do it in that time, you're fucked. And that's it. And, uh, you know, and, and it, it is amazing how much that implants itself on you. And I, I can totally understand why that's, you know, a shoulder shrug for many people now because it is so different. But yeah, back then it, it was ridiculous how games like this were so intimidating because you're like, no, 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 no. I, I have to have the time. And that's why I was so, so glad of that, you know, magazine and the guide and stuff like that. Because I knew where the save points were and kind of had a better idea of what I was going to be doing. If I'd gone into it in the same way that I'd gone into the original game, which I described again on this podcast in the previous episode, where, you know, my friend rented it for his PlayStation. And I was there and showed me, and you know, he quit pretty much after the dogs in the window thing. And it's like, and you know, that it, it's so intimidating. I couldn't play it and just didn't want to know. And it, it's crazy to think how different that game series is because of that tiny little evolution in how games play. Did you have anything like that happen to you ever, Jay? When I you were did. Younger? You know, I, um, I was given a PlayStation a PSX for my birthday and I was gifted a copy of Final Fantasy VII, except, oh, no. you know, as somebody that <laughs> didn't grow up with um, a great deal of consoles, like I had a hand-me-down Super Nintendo or something, and that was the extent of my video game playing when I was a kid mm. um, and was unaware that you needed a memory card just because I wasn't inundated with games back in the day like that. And so I kind of was just like, oh, you know, I have this opportunity. Let me just ask for a PlayStation. And I got it. <laughs> and I got Final Fantasy VII. And I played for the first, I don't know, three hours or four hours or something that night. And then it got to the point where I was like, oh, well, it's time for bed. And it was like, oh, I have to save. And just having to redo that first four hours was traumatic. And I think I only ever finished the first disc of that game and never went back to replay the rest of it later in life. But it was that thing where it's just like, so soul crushing in a way now just doesn't exist, right? I mean, nobody that's mm -hmm. not around our general age group uh, even probably knows what the hell we're talking about because of stuff <laughs> like, uh, you know, resume save and whatnot. And they're like, oh God, listen to these old fuddy duddies complaining about, you know, the bygone era. But it is something that I think, you know, it was, I think there's an element of what we're talking about that heightens the horror of survival horror games from that generation, right? That idea that, especially classic Resi, when you had those ink ribbons, right? If you fuck around, you're going to put yourself in a bad way. If And, mm -hmm. you know, I think Rob even gave an example of not having uh, enough bullets to face Mr. X or something, right? I had that same experience when I played through Resi 2 the first time where 
I basically got to a point in the game where I wasn't playing survival horror the way you're supposed to. And I was like, oh, just kill everything. I'll miss a bunch because, you know, I'll find more ammo in the next room. And then I completely fucked myself on a run and had to restart completely from the beginning. Um, There's a quality to that, I think, that really did define classic survival horror games that they've just grown out of, you know, with the technology advancements and things like that, that, you know, it's not to say survival horror is like in a bad way or anything. I'm not trying to make that claim, but it's just, there was a real world horror to playing those games back in the day when you had to worry about saving at opportune moments or, you know, almost nowadays, I suppose you would have a guide that tells you the perfect run for a game like this or something. But, you know, again, back in the day, there was a lot of learning just through living it. Um, and, you know, at times I found myself nostalgic for that for some of the reasons that we've discussed, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. more handholding now. Granted, with the uh, how time constraints of life and things like that, when you have to do podcast prep and dealing with work and, you know, other responsibilities, sometimes that's not a bad thing to have your hand held to just get to a point so that way you can be prepared. But, you know, when you have a good amount of time to sit down with something and just consume it for what it is, there are times where I was like, oh, man, this seems like it's a more of a breeze than I remember games of this ilk to uh, having have been back in the day. Um, one thing that I did want to circle back to that we never really touched upon was uh, that that big, beautiful bastard, William Birkin, and the multiple <laughs> mutations uh, yeah. of him in the boss fights. Um, I figure we could just talk about that a little bit because that's an element of this game that I really love, You know, much like with the original, but just that graphical fidelity and really exposing every, you know, muscular tendon of his mutation from the various stages was, uh, you know, uh, it felt like a new for me on this recent uh, playthrough. And I just wanted to chat maybe a little bit about our uh, experiences fighting the various mutations of him. Yeah. So you, you get that first fight with him in, in this remake, right? And that once you've finally gone through most of the police station and opened up the statue and you're walking down and he's like kind of, He's he's kind of like running above you or beside you and like changing locations. You're like, what the hell is this? What am I dealing with now? And then you finally see him and you're like, oh, man, he's even scarier than I remember from the original one. Hmm. And you get the eyeball. And I have this thing with eyeballs. Like, I love horror movies when they do anything to eyes or you see an eye. I'm just like, let's let's not do the eyeball thing. And so now you're dealing with that here. And to your point, the progression of this character as he gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And I think the, the main point of showing his strength is that scene where Mr. X is opening the elevator. Right. And all of a sudden he's just like, like you almost get an expression from him and it's just Birkin tearing him in half. And it's like, this is the monster that you could not do anything to. And William Berger came, Berger, I'm getting hungry. <laughs> William Birkin came and just tears him in half like he's a piece of paper, basically. And you're like, oh shit, what am I going to be dealing with going forward now? And just every single time you come across him, it's harder and harder and harder and more relentless and scarier because now you do have that human element of this person who. You, you know kind of the story of him and you know it's Sherry's father. You, you kind of put all that together and you see the anguish and you're like, oh, he's he's on a different mission than Mr. X. And there's some emotional ties to that as well. And I'm kind of in the way of those emotional ties. Yeah. But he's also, you know, he's not a pure character by any means. You know, he knows what he was doing. 
It's like, mm-hmm. you know, he just happened to be shafted by the even shittier people at the company. Course, and you, know, yeah. you see it with both of them, you know, with Annette as mm-hmm. well. So that's what, again, that's what I always find quite appealing about the, you know, the sympathetic villains of this series is that they are always still arseholes at heart yeah. and your empathy for them or a sympathy for them comes from a place of well yeah i get why they got to where they are but if they'd done the right thing in the first place they'd never have got here you know they'd never have been in this position so it, while it's kind of tragic to have someone you know be basically you know terrorized by their own you know creation you know it's still someone who could have done everything to avoid being in this situation and just saw science as being the answer without thinking beyond uh, thinking in a human term. Yeah. And I think that adds great layers. You know, we were saying earlier about irons and how he has his own sort of agenda for things. And then you have umbrella who are this, you know, a formless, shapeless thing in the background that, especially in the remake more, I think, where they are, you know, pulling the strings, but not really, you know, they're very much like, I feel in a, a way that is more relevant now, they're that big company with lots of money who make a mistake and like, fuck that, I'm shrugging my, I'm shrugging my shoulders here. And to say, you know, it happened. We don't quite understand how it happened when really they sat down and thought about it for even a minute. It'd be like, yeah, we, we do, but you don't know any of the people that are involved in it. So fuck you. We've done this. And, you know, the, you know it's very telling that their way of, um, getting out of it is to <laughs> nuke an entire city and, and hope that no one ever speaks. That's how to I them. get out of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If, you, if you're going to do anything, you know, Let's not give Elon Musk any ideas, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, but yeah, Nuka City and everything will be a okay, and you can have another shot at it in a different form. But yeah, it is cool to have these different versions of evil, and you know, to say that evil isn't just purely down to like, oh, this person has no remorse, the you know, eyes black as sharks' eyes, that sort of shit. You know, it's basically, you know, anyone can perform evil acts and mm. even feel bad for it, you know, but you, you can still be terrible and awful and evil and be consumed by it without even realizing it's there. And I, I think, yeah, as pulpy as the story is behind Resident Evil, to have these different levels of evil that all stem from what Umbrella is doing, which is this sort of benevolent evil, where it's like they're doing it for profit. Yeah, it's like they're not doing it because they want to rule the world or any of that shit. They're doing it because it makes money if we do this. And then after the fact, someone goes, oh, hang on, what if this causes this? And yeah, it's too late. It's happened. You know, the world has ended, um, so to speak. But, you know, I think the reinvention of this series of like, you know, just sort of nipping it in the bud every time it sort of gets to that point is smart because then you don't have to worry about the fucking nonsense that of like, let's just, the world has ended sort of shit that we got in Resident Evil 6, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, which just seemed like too far, too far a step. But yeah, it needs to be this way. Where it's like it's a company who just keep getting away with the shit just enough 
And yeah, that I think it's a common complaint that the films, you know, like Umbrella just seems stupid in those films because their plan doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And whereas in the games, especially with the modernization of that story, they make sense in the cynical business sense and, you know, more than ever. But yeah, it still just dumbfounds you how anyone could just be that cruel and cynical and cold about it, you know, but people are, you know, companies are, you know, it's like if they can distance themselves enough from their problem, they're going to do it. They're going to make this problem happen. And it's the most relevant point. The thing that really modernizes the remake more than anything else is that. And setting up the fall guy, right? Yeah. So Birkin's, Birkin's the fall guy. Yeah. And we see companies do this all the time. Obviously not to the extent that there's a mutated monster running around. They're like, <laughs> that well, we know of. he did it to himself. <laughs> that we know of. Yeah. But yeah, they, they find someone to pin the blame on. They fire that employee. And then they keep doing the same thing over and over. I have to say one of my f- most recent uh, favorite gaming moments was watching my buddy play this game when it was released and having that moment where, you know, Mr. X gets ripped in half and my buddy had never played a Resident Evil game before. And just seeing the look on his face when he realized that Mr. X was basically just the tip of the iceberg and that the real foe is now appearing before us and you're not going to fight it once or twice, but three times. Like that was such a, you know, I took glee in seeing just the horror on his face of realizing that, Oh fuck. Like I have to fight this monster now that is uh, more terrifying than what had just been, you know, causing me uh, grief for the last few hours. But what I really love and, you know, it's exemplified by the fact that, you know, the graphical fidelity of the remake and everything is just how highly detailed each rendition of Mr. Of um, Birkin is. And then just the fact that, you know, it continues to fill the screen. And that's one thing that, you know, is actually a benefit of changing from the fixed camera perspective is that, you know, with that third person viewpoint, especially when you're playing as Claire, I found it just he towers over you in that final form. It's just this monstrosity of, you know, muscle and eyeballs and claws and teeth and all these things that quite literally at one point, if you are like me and fuck up and let him get too close it basically fills the entire screen mm-hmm. and it's awe-inspiring. It almost kind of feels like you're fighting like a kaiju or something. Um, and I just, I love how, despite that, you know, the foes that you're fighting are getting larger and larger and larger, but the scope of the story and the ramifications for what's happening still remain pretty confined to this uh, facility or to Raccoon City itself, right? This is mm-hmm. the game before, you know, when you're in Resi 3 and it's more about, you know, running around in the city and it's a little more open where, you know, the stakes start to get larger and it's about, you know, saving the world. That's an element of Resi 2 that I really love is that the stakes feel more immediate and yeah. it doesn't feel as if it's, you know, we're taking the world into consideration, mm. which I think is what allows this game to have more personable characters and more personable storytelling than maybe two or maybe three or four um, and even, you know, extending past those uh, those titles. And yeah, I just I love that boss fight and just the fact that it wasn't the first game to, of course, have monster a boss that evolves into various forms. But I think that it's one that really does a great job at redefining the expectations of what you're going to be fighting. Because, you know, sure, you can get through two waves of Birkin mutations, but still nothing's going to prepare you for just the monstrosity that is that final one. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you go into uh, the second run through, I think there's even an additional boss fight with them. That is a really great sort of just like surprise at the end of the day. Um 
But yeah, I think that I just wanted to circle back around to that boss fight because it's definitely one that stands out as uh, probably one of my favorites from a survival horror standpoint. Yeah. And and the different versions of the boss fights with him, right? Mm -hmm. So you have the one where you actually have to hit him with the... I guess you don't have to, but the one where you're trying to hit him with the, with like the trailer thing yeah. that the comes swinging around yeah. the shipping container. Yeah. So like just finding different elements to keep fighting this boss in different ways, I thought was really well done as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's also the type of thing when you're thinking about a remake, you could introduce new elements like that to boss fights that add more complexity to them. Perhaps um, mm-hmm. that's the type of thing where, you know, I I'm I I don't know Neil was that in the original when What's you that? have to hit him with the shipping container? Not like that. No, no, no. It okay. was um yeah, it was a different kind of thing altogether from that. But yeah, it, mostly it was it, I think it was more like a cutscene, right? Yeah. Like he kind of yeah. goes over the rail. I, I yeah. think it was, yeah. yeah. It, in very much the same way a lot of that stuff happens where it's due to the limitations of the time it's like mm-hmm. cutscene mm-hmm. shortened version of what we ended up getting. But um yeah, it, it's you still got a sense, at least, of what you were going for, and like he was relentless, and he would keep coming back because of his desire, you know, mm. to to get his daughter, you know, which you know, I think is beautifully tragic. Right. This episode is a great example of how I use Neil as my uh, gaming encyclopedia for so many, <laughs> so many well, things. I mean, th- this, this is this particularly is just that kind of game because it's I, I played it many, many times. But it's like, it's... but I think you know, if anything, to my point, you know, taking a moment that was in a cutscene and then having the player have more agency and involvement in it in the actual boss battle itself, I think is a really smart updating on something that you know back then it was due to technical limitations, but now. That excuse isn't really there. Granted, mm. they did the opposite with the alligator fight, right? It was more interactive and now it's a cutscene, but we'll move on from that. But I just think that it's a great to see deviations made to something such as that, that, you know, break up maybe what would have been maybe a little monotonous of just running around again and trying mm. to hit this creature and dodging and then shooting it again. Like, I mm. like that originality and that creative liberty that's taken there. Um, I find to be, you know, a benefit of a remake and what more remakes maybe should strive to do these little touches that just, you know, it doesn't rewrite the experience, but it does give the player maybe more options in how, you know, they combat things. Yeah. And just to sort of put a point across with this and in terms of remake, the perspective change is so important to sort of reframing what is considered horrific or spectacular. And, you know, it's something I really think of right now, thinking of God of War and how that changed, you know, from these very fixed cameras and, you know, these showing Kratos to be a smaller character in a larger scale world of these behemoths and greater sights. And like Resident Evil, you know, it, that series then moved to, you know, being very close to, to the character and seeing it from their perspective more, you know, and, in both cases, I think it really works. It really changes how you feel about things, but also feels really familiar. You know, it's like you can still have that sort of sense of what was there before in the terms of like God of War. It's that, you know, that sense of scale and epicness of fights you know, against monsters and such. And here, you know, it's very much the intimacy of feeling vulnerable, you know, in this, you know, this tight, corridor environment and yeah i yeah there is something you know to really think about with a remake that if you can change the perspective entirely 
and still get across the same feeling, you know, but in a new and refreshing way like that, you're onto a winner. You know, I think that's something where Resident Evil 4 or even Dead Space will maybe suffer slightly is that they did that already. They already had that perspective. Um, you know, I think the interesting thing that Dead Space will be doing is doing the God of War thing of being like, you know, one take, you know, never straying from Isaac. That could be interesting, you know, um, but yeah, Resident Evil 4 isn't going to do that. that. That's going to be very much like the original was. So that that's going to have to shake things up in a very different way. But yeah, that's possibly where its weakness lies compared to the remakes of 2 and 3, is that they were a very, very different kind of game. So yeah, I, I think we will see in time if that is going to work quite as effectively uh, as it did with those two. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, Rob, my final question for you before mm. we wrap up, do you think that there are still lessons that can be learned from Resident Evil 2's construction or design that more modern survival horror games could be reminded of? Um, I think you can always be evolving. I think I think the lesson that they should take away from this one is that innovating and updating to the modern world isn't terrible right the original one is of the 90s like that is it's of the 90s it has a special place in my heart because it's of the 90s if they decide to remake this game in another 25 years leon and claire are going to have to be updated again yeah Mm. their their personalities their characters even though it might still be set in 1998 you need to connect with your modern audience so making sure that your characters are still finding ways to connect with who the players are at that current time you have to continue to do but again let's not completely turn it into a game of like rainbows and like um you know candy and everything like that like not find the soul but update to the modern times with telling the story to a newer generation in a way that you can because who knows what video games are going to look like in 25 years yeah i mean and we're lucky enough that we we exist in a time where horror is prevalent and Mm -hmm. and is relevant because as is usual you know the more miserable the world is the more horror kind of succeeds you know, in general, because it, it's catharsis, you know. But so, yeah, you would hope that the next time we have to go to the remake factory, that it's going to be in a similar period. You don't want it to be, you know, for personal reasons. But yeah, at the same time, you want that misery to kind of invade it because I think you could look at certain periods of history and where horror goes and the things it does in them where things are a bit more serene or happier and it doesn't quite feel the same. There's not quite the venom to it, you know? There's a cynicism to it that doesn't, you know, a packaged version of what horror should be. And, you know, that can work in in small doses, but for Resident Evil, we saw where that goes. You know, we, we've seen where that takes it. You know, where everything's making money and everything's great. Following the money, never a good idea for a thing like Resident Evil. <laughs> it's like, right. go your way. It will come. People will love it in time. And I admit, yes, there will be people out there that are fans of Resident Evil 5 and 6 and 4. But pff, 
come on. You cannot look at those games and think that they are not the reason the series almost died a death. You know, it, during that time, we got the spin-offs like Resident Evil, you know, Operation Raccoon City and Umbrella Call, which are just horrendous games. You know, and, <laughs> you know, beyond being Resident Evil games, they are just, yeah. I mean, Umbrella Call, fucking hell. What, what is that thing? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's neither Resident Evil nor what it's trying to be, which is fucking Counter-Strike, fucking Call of Duty doesn't, yeah, that's what I mean. It just does not know what it is. Mm. And it's insane, but that, we don't want that. And I think I was kind of happy that they were sort of pushing Reverse to the side, you know, and saying, okay, we don't want to do that. You know, maybe we'll just quietly let that go. But then they brought it back and really don't seem to have learned from that. So that's a slight worry. But overall, I think generally with the slight missteps they've made, they are smaller missteps than they've been making in the recent past. So a lot of that has to be contributed to the fact that we are just living in a point where people are more susceptible to what horror can do, or what it can be. And that's why we're getting the remakes. That's why we are getting the. So we have to hope that each of these remakes understands what the series they are or were is going for. Yeah. So we want Dead Space, we want, you know, Alone in the Dark, we want Resident Evil, we want them all to do the right thing with those series. Because the first one that doesn't is going to maybe set the tone for where we go from here. Yeah, I think, you know, to kind of summarize what we've all kind of been saying, right? I think that you can't be terrified of change and you can't be too precious about the past, right? Mm while at the same time not bastardizing the new rendition of something so yeah. that way it has no connection to that past. But at the same time, you know, not turning your nose up to the idea of change when it's, you know, implemented smartly as it is in Resident Evil 2 in many ways. But uh, yeah, Rob, this was a pleasure, man. I was so happy that we could get you in here to chat about this and uh, maybe uh, we'll get you back in the future sometime to chat uh, that uh, that game under the sea that you love so much. <laughs> yeah, anytime, guys. It was... It was a ton of fun to come on and start talking about video games. But uh, where can the people find you in your uh, podcast on social media? Cool. Yeah. So we're Hometown Ghost Stories. We are part of the Bloody FM network. We have a main episode that comes out on every podcast platform on Wednesdays. What's a little different about us, though, is we actually record that episode live Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. So you can actually jump in the chat, interact with us and talk to us. And we cover a different town every every week. And maybe it's one story from that town. Maybe it's multiple stories from that town. But you might hear where you're from and learn something about a place that you've never heard of before. And on Fridays, we do a side content episode that could be a movie review. It could be a celebrity ghost story or it could be like a cursed possession. But yeah. We're uh, Hometown Ghost Stories, and if you're into sports, follow me on Twitter because I also work for a fantasy sports company as well. Terrific, but thanks again, man. This was a pleasure. Anytime, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please write us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. You can also drop us an email over at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday.